The advice and opinions expressed by the hosts of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Dr. Grandin for being will willing to be with us. Okay. And we have a bunch of questions um, from parents. And just before uh, we started, I was talking to you about the fact that parents are so interested in what you have to say about finding your child's strength and how some children are visual, some are more conceptual thinkers. And parents always want some help and guidance, Dr. Grannon, about how they can figure out where their child's strengths are that, so they can start to feed them. Do you have any advice for us? Well, yes. Definitely. Uh, in my book, The Autistic Brain, I talk about the visual thinkers like me who think in photorealistic pictures. These kids are oftentimes have a lot of problems when they hit algebra. Then you've got the more mathematical mind, the pattern thinker. These kids are often a little mathematicians, and, but they'll have trouble with reading. Then you also have the word thinkers. Now, a kid's ability usually shows up around third or fourth grade. It can sometimes happen earlier, but third or fourth grade is when it tends to show up. You're not going to see it usually in three-year-olds. You know, visual thinkers often will start drawing and, be, and being really good at art. That's your hint. The little mathematicians are going to be good at math. And with mathematicians, don't hold them back. Don't hold them back and make them do baby math. Let them do more advanced, uh, let them do more advanced math. If a third grader can do a high school math book, let them do it. Word thinkers are often good at writing. Do you think that sometimes parents are trying to look for those clues a little too early? Do you think waiting till third yeah. or fourth grade yeah. is the key? Yeah, they tend to look too early. My ability in art did not really show up until third and fourth grade. Interesting. And so, so before that, your mother probably wouldn't have been able to see how great of a visual mind you have. Well, I can remember Valentine's I made when I was five, and they were just regular little kids' art. They were not anything good. Okay. All right. And now, Dr. Grandin, we are going to have an opportunity to see you on Friday. You are coming to Ventura, California, for a Future Horizon uh, event, for a conference on, on Friday. And you're speaking about sensory issues. And this is an area where parents have a lot of questions for you about sensory issues and how can we begin to understand, if we are not on the autism spectrum, what sensory issues our child might be having? Well, one of the most common, and I had it, is hearing sensitivity. If you see a child holding his ears uh, or he has a meltdown when he's in a noisy shopping center, that's very likely to be sound sensitivity. And sometimes that can be desensitized if the child can control the dreaded sound, where he can, um, you know, control turning it on, control making it go off. 
Other kids have visual sensitivity. This is not my problem. But other kids will have this where they can't tolerate fluorescent lights. They can see them flicker. When they get tired, uh, visual images may kind of break up into what one person called Picasso uh, vision. You can get touch sensitivity. I couldn't stand being held. And that can sometimes be desensitized with, uh, with deep pressure. And in my book, The Autistic Brain, I have a whole chapter outlining the sensory issues. And the other thing about them, they are extremely variable from sense to sense. You know, one kid will have hearing problems. Another kid will have um, uh, uh, visual problems. And is it ever that um, a, a, a variable in terms of what time of day or other things going on? Were you able to be touched in some circumstances but not in others? Well, the um, sensory problems get worse when kids get tired. But one kid will have a touch sensitivity problem. Another kid will not have it. Mm -hmm. They are extremely variable. And they'll vary in severity. And they're going to vary into which sense is affected. Absolutely. And we're so excited on Friday to hear you speak on this event because it really is unknown territory for a lot of parents. You feel like you're delving in. And, and I, I will tell you honestly, as a parent of a child on the autism spectrum, it's so important. It's like I think that most of us would give anything if for a day we could get inside our kid's head and experience through their nervous system what they were experiencing. Um, it it is, is really an area where a lot of parents just feel completely at sea, Dr. Grandin. Well, let's just imagine, a de for hearing sensitivity, a dentist drill hitting a nerve. Mm. Also, imagine um, your ears are a microphone, and it only has two settings. You can turn it off, or it's on super loud. Mm. It has no intermediate settings. Yeah, I now that my son is is really really verbal, it's fascinating to me that he'll talk about certain sounds and he says, "Oh, I can't be around that sound." And he'll say to me, "It's like my brain is bleeding uh, if I hear that sound." He said, "Every part of me," he says, "feels like my brain is bleeding and that my bones are turning to water," which sounds terrible to me. Well, it's it, it's sensory overload. It's like too intense. Yeah, is the problem, and. And uh, I can't stand that horrible Dyson blade hand dryer that they have in the bathroom, mm. but I tolerate it now. You know, now if I had to work in an office and listen to that constantly, that, that would not work. But, you know, um, uh, sometimes uh, some of the, the sound sensitivity in little kids can be desensitized somewhat if they control it. One of the real bad sounds is when a microphone squeals. You know, you get the microphone too close to the speaker and the speaker squeals. Well, let the child take the handheld microphone. He walks up to it, and when it just goes, eh, then he can back off. Yeah. He's controlling it. Okay. My fear when I was a child was balloons popping. And and one of the ways I, that could have maybe been desensitized is take a balloon and blow it up really tiny, and then I take a pin and pop it, and it barely makes a sound. Then we blow it up just a little bit bigger, and I take a pin and pop it. Where I am in control, that's the key. Okay. So when you're doing the desensitization, make sure that there is an element that the child is controlling for it. Absolutely. I love All right. That. Let's say the problem is uh, throwing a fit at the supermarket. Mm -hmm. Well, let the child control how much supermarket he's going to tolerate. When he raises his hand up, and there's a special signal, you're going to take him out of the supermarket. I love that. 
I absolutely love that. I think that's remarkable, which kind of leads me into the next uh, set of questions, Dr. Grannon. We have a lot of parents that are talking about anxiety and how they can help their kids and teenagers especially deal with anxiety. Um, is that a control thing as well? Well, no. There's a problem in some individuals with autism with the fear system just being turned on and overdrive. In fact, my amygdala, the fear center, is larger than normal. Mm. Now, I want to emphasize, not everybody on the spectrum has this. This is where we get into the variability. But us visual thinkers, I've, and I've seen this a lot of non-autistic visual thinkers, too, uh, when we hit puberty, when I hit puberty, that's when the panic attacks started. Mm. It was absolutely horrible. It was sort of like being in a land with a bunch of, like, bunch of lions stalking around, and uh, that's the way my nervous system was acting. It was dreadful. And it's now controlled with a low dose of antidepressant drugs. This is where medication can make a difference. And the medications you should be using for this is not the antipsychotics, like things like Risperidol, Abilify, and stuff like that. You need to be using some of the old-fashioned drugs, like a little tiny bit of Prozac. I'm taking a little tiny dose of an ancient old drug called Disipramine. And you need to make sure you use very low doses because too high a dose, you can get agitation and insomnia. And I strongly recommend that people read the chapter in Thinking in Pictures. I have a chapter in there called A Believer in Biochemistry, mm. which describes all of my experiences. And, and to read that chapter in Thinking in Pictures, I want to emphasize there's no new drugs that work any better than the old drugs. Most of the new drugs are what are called patent extenders. They're just me too drugs. The ancient old drugs that you can buy down at Walmart will work just fine. And those are the drugs that are discussed in the chapter in Thinking in Pictures, a believer in biochemistry. Okay, really remarkable. And and you mentioned that if, if it's the wrong dose that you can have insomnia, which then I imagine can exacerbate the problem, and that sometimes you will get people who can be aggressive. And the next set of questions that our parents wanted to know was about those kids that are aggressive. We had one parent in particular who said, my son is 24 and can be very violent. What can I do? What do well, you recommend? Well, kinds of violence. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's one type that's a hot and sweaty rage, and it's kind of diffuse, and they tend to be really hot and sweaty. And there's a new book out called Hope for the Violently Aggressive Child that you can get from Future Horizons. And that book um, talks about the use of the old-fashioned uh, blood pressure medicines, things like beta blockers, alpha blockers, clonidine, propanolol, uh, some of these old ancient blood pressure pills which can work really well. That's for the more hot and sweaty rage. Then you can get a rage that's kind of an irritability type of, of, of rage, especially in nonverbal clients, where a very, very low dose of Risperidol, and I mean a really low dose, and you can use the generic. You don't have to use the expensive things. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in also in uh, Thinking in Pictures, I talk about a doctor named Joe Hudgens, who worked with some of the worst clients in terms of violence. Another type of rage thing, it's actually a psychomotor seizure. And when this happens, it's like a switch out of the blue. It's like something flipped a light switch, and they just get set off with it. And it, and it doesn't have any rhyme or reason to it. They could be listening to the music player, just, you know, you know relaxing under a tree, and then they just throw a big fit. And that's a psychomotor epilepsy. 
Okay, really good information. We have a qu uh, question from a viewer that uh, wants to know about explaining death and, and helping a, uh, an individual on the spectrum to deal with the feelings and, and all the unknowns that come around death. And I'm imagining that you've experienced the death of a, of a loved one uh, many times throughout your life at this point. Temple, what can you help us to understand? Well, you just have to understand that they're, they're gone. I can remember as a young child, um, uh, it was a teachable moment this doesn't sound very nice, but it uh, really made me understand why I should not run in front of a car. Mm. And there was a squashed squirrel on the pavement. He was very flat. And there was no way the veterinarian was going to put the squirrel back together again. And that's the reason why you don't run in front of cars, because I wouldn't want to be like that squirrel. And, you know, there's a point where, you know, the person's gone. You know, this is for some people, a religious faith is really, you know, really you know helps them out uh you know it's um they're gone yeah have you do you feel like you've experienced the grief of loss in your life oh i've definitely had things where i've you know grieved about yeah i um, you know it, it's uh they're gone and and um, you know i can remember when ann died i was you know really upset about that Anne is with the aunt out at the ranch. Mm -hmm. And and what? Do you, how long did it take you to get to a point where you felt better? And was there anything that helped you to get over it? Well, I kind of wanted to remember them more like how they were alive, mm -hmm. not what she looked like when she was almost dead. Mm -hmm. I can remember when she she was all like really old looking and terrible looking, and shriveled up looking. I like to remember, I've got this one picture that I show in my cattle handling talk of Anne standing in the middle of one of my corral systems, and I'd rather remember that, and I actually show that picture in my class. That's a good and thing. And in that picture. That's a good thing to think of, to remember them the way, yeah. when when they were in their prime and remarkably happy. Okay. Well, my she was very, very happy, and she was standing in the middle of one of my very early corral system designs. Uh, really remarkable. So I, I also have a bunch of parents who are wanting to know, you know, the autism community seems to be very um, fractured at the moment. Like there are a bunch of different camps of people saying, we want you to use these words. We, we want to we refer to autism. Um, All right, well, refer to the camps. Uh, just, just label one, two, three, whatever, and I'm going to write down what they Okay, so it seems like there are there are a group of individuals who are on the autism spectrum, who are offended a lot of the times when people say, "Well, we're trying to um, overcome uh, things having to do with autism." They feel like we've negatively uh, we've attached negativity to the term autism, and they feel like there are a lot of great things with autism, and that when, for instance, um, up north, they they said a thing about how they wanted to. Um, get rid of autism in our lifetime, and that, All right, let, that okay, hurts let's, let's simplify this. In other okay. words, these are people on the spectrum yeah. that are against the idea of curing autism. Yeah, or or even the language around that. Yeah. All right. Then, okay, then you gonna, have okay, um, then the next group. The next group is parents who um, think of autism as something that they have to help their child overcome, um, that they need to work on, and, um, and that there is hope for their child to overcome the more disabling aspects of autism. They're not looking... 
oh, how you define overcome. Yeah. I consider, you know, overcoming uh, uh, getting a good job that you like and supporting yourself. Yeah. You know, going to college, those would be things that would be, uh, I would consider, you know, overcoming it. You're still autistic. Right. I don't uh, want to be like these guys that are sitting at home playing video games all day. Right. That's not a, a successful outcome. Right. Um, and then it seems like there's a third group of parents who believe that their children have been diagnosed with autism and, and their children are on the more severe end and they, they don't have a whole lot of hope for their child making any progress. Um, and they view autism as a tragedy. Uh, well, all right. Let's all right. Okay. Let's just address these okay. one at a time. We've got three groups here. Um, now, I have said in many of my talks. Let's talk about group one. Yeah. These are the people on the spectrum. And I have said in many of my talks that if we were to eliminate all autism genetics, you better like your computer really well because there's not going to be any more computer engineers to build you a new one. Because if you got rid of all the autism genetics, you'd be getting rid of an awful lot of creativity. Because a little bit of the trait can give some advantages, like mathematical thinking, visual thinking, some of these sorts of things. Yes. And and uh, uh, you know, they, now when it comes to you know, you know, so totally getting rid of autism genetics, I mean, I completely am against that. But on the other hand, I want people to be successful. So, how do I define success? Getting out in the workforce and supporting yourself. Uh, preferably in a job you're going to like. I've gone out to Silicon Valley, and there's undiagnosed Asperger's people out there. They're having a great time. Free food, pastel bikes to ride around on. <laughs> and then there is uh, another group uh, that's gotten addicted to video games and has become a video game recluse sitting at home. That's not a successful outcome. Yeah. And I don't think they're happy. And, and some of these are going to need a little bit of medication to cut the anxiety. And, and one of the things that helped make me be successful was when I was a teenager, I was not allowed to become a recluse in my room. They let me work in the horse barn. They let me mess around and not study. But be a recluse in my room, that was where I was not allowed to do that. I had to be out doing things. And when I didn't want to go to Friday night movie night, they gave me a choice, projectionist or sit in the audience. All right, let's talk about group two, parents that want to help their child overcome. Okay, so this group of parents uh, tends to be on the, the, the kids that are less severe. In other words, do the early intervention. You've got the child talking. Yes, they'd like to have their child do well in school. Mm -hmm. Maybe have the child go to college. Um, I'm seeing a, a lot of kids having a lot of trouble with the school system because I'd estimate that maybe 20% of um, individuals on the spectrum uh, that are you know fully verbal would be really good at one of the skilled trades and there's a zillion jobs out there that are really fun jobs uh, and some of the best parts of my life was working in construction I just loved it and and no you're not going to make the autism go away but you've got to teach social skills I had social skills pounded into me I mean I had to be a little party host when I was young and I'm seeing too many kids who don't know how to shake hands uh, they're too shouldered I hate it at a meeting when the mom comes up and does all the talking for their child, and the child doesn't do any of the talking. The child's got to learn to do the talking. And I want people to be successful because what happens is I, I'm seeing uh, uh, when I go to a meatpacking plant or I go to some technical thing, I am seeing that same geeky kid that doesn't have the label, and he's doing good. 
Yeah. Now, where an autism label in somebody that's got a good job does good is in their relationships. And that's why I did my book, um, Different Not Less, 14 Old Aspies that made it in the workplace but had trouble with their relationships. And and that can be really helpful. Um, you know, it, defi- it, it, it you're not going to make them normal, but it defines how you call overcome. Yeah. Uh, somebody that sits in a room for eight hours a day playing video games and is on social security check, that's not a good outcome. Yeah. And and that's uh, I'm seeing too many kids going down that route. All right, now we get into this third group where you've got parents with extremely severe autism, and the child is not making progress. Mm-hmm. And and um, they've got all kinds of problems with the kid. You're not able to do any normal activities. I can remember one time um, I, I did a talk at a big church down in Texas, and and they had a respite night where the parents could uh, bring in their really severely, the kind of kids that you cannot do normal activities with. You cannot go to a restaurant with them. You cannot go to a shopping center. You cannot do a movie. You can't do church. You can't do just normal events. And they described this one poor family that put the air conditioning on in their car after they dropped the kid off and just lay there in the car for four hours playing the stereo. Mm. They were just completely strung out. You see, this is the problem we have with autism. It's such a big spectrum. You're going from Silicon Valley to a child that may have epilepsy, multiple medical problems on top of the autism that is extremely handicapped and they cannot do any any normal stuff at all. Yeah, and, and I wonder, Dr. Grandin, if part of the issue is that it's hard to explain that to our legislators. I think that a lot of people in office don't understand that autism is such a huge spectrum that you can be talking about the person who's in Silicon Valley making a good living and the person who is not able to go and eat at a restaurant. I think that's hard for our legislators well, to I understand. I think it's hard, and I think the DSM-5, getting rid of Asperger's, was a mistake. Okay. Because from the standpoint of service, providing services, uh, there's a big difference between the fully verbal kids and the ones that are very, very severe. They yeah. need a totally different kind of service. And the thing from a service provider standpoint, having the category of significant speech delay and maybe never developing speech as opposed to no speech delay, um, or at least there's no speech delay that anybody notices from a pro- service provider standpoint actually makes a lot of sense. Do you uh, do you like though that in the new DSM five that it has designations of that are that are about being severely affected, being more moderately affected? Do, does yes, that that's part good? Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. that makes sense. But then you've got to define those categories. I agree. Now I would put in the severely affected that they remain, you know, they don't get speech. Yeah. You know that would be severely affected. Now when I was three, I had no speech, mm. but when I got into very good early intervention, I I managed to. Um, managed to get speech. And we had the opportunity a week ago today that for the first time we were able to talk to your mom on the show and it okay. was a very it was a very exciting thing and it was uh, very thrilling for me to have an opportunity to talk with her. I, and she talked about some of that early speech that you got and how amazing those women were who taught you at a time when women didn't have a lot of career choices, uh, how they were really pioneers. It was really exciting to hear well, her talk were. about and, that. And Miss Reynolds, my speech teacher, uh, she basically did ABA 
I mean, Miss Reynolds is the inventor of ABA. She was doing it in her basement on me, you know, back in, uh, like, 19, uh, 1949. I find that really remarkable, Temple. That, that gives me so much hope. Uh, we, uh, we have to let you go because we promised that we wouldn't keep you very long and we have to start our live show. But we are going to come and see you on Friday, and I'm thinking of bringing my 10-year-old my, uh, son to meet you as well on Friday. We think, okay. we think that this is a remarkable event. Again, we want to talk about it's the Future Horizons conference that you're going to be speaking there. And if people want to register to go to that, it's in Ventura, California, that they can go to fhautism.com and they can register for that. And you do these conferences frequently around the country for uh, yeah, future I, I do I do quite a few conferences yes I do and so and they can find out more information about that at future horizon fhautism.com you can yes. see all the different places where you can go and see dr. Grandin speak we'll look forward to seeing you on Friday dr. Grandin all right thank you so much everybody it's world autism awareness day and we have with us in the studio joanne lara from autism works now we have with us on skype anita lesko and we have with us on the phone the fabulous the wonderful dr temple grandin first of all uh dr grandin welcome back to autism live it's great to be here thrilled to have you here and anita is here too you guys have a book that is out today written by anita but it's about you. Uh, it's Temple Grandin, the stories that I tell my friends. I got to start, Temple, with asking you, why did you choose Anita Lesko to write this book about you? Well, I think we kind of just took each other. Anita you know, thought of the idea of doing it. And one thing I really admired Anita for is the fact that she went, came from a very poor background and she started out working in skating rink and at concession stands, and now is a very successful nurse uh, anesthetist at the hospital. And and uh, she had kind of a work history, sort of like me, doing a lot of different kinds of odd jobs. Um, I was painting signs uh, when I first started. That's how I learned how to do freelance work, and then that morphed on into my um, my cattle work. Well, and, and obviously the two of you share a similar sense of humor because there's so many things in the book that are funny. How did you guys realize that you, because you guys laugh a lot on the phone, I hear. Well, we just, you know, got to talking about different things and, and maybe, you know, uh, we just li liked a lot of the same stuff. And one thing that really interested me was how some of our stuff on our work history was so similar. Anita and I both cleaned horse stalls as a teenager. And she cleaned horse stalls in order to get riding lessons. And when I was cleaning horse stalls and running a horse barn, I was learning how to work, which was really important. Wow. And so, Anita, I want you to chime in here. Uh, this, this was a, a fabulous opportunity for you uh, to get to spend time on the phone with Temple. I started asking you before, but I never really got to it. What's the one thing that you found out about Temple that you didn't know before? Well, there's so many things. Um, I'm going to think about that for a minute. I mean, there's so many things. I think some of her childhood things were the things that surprised me most, that she just was like every other kid doing kid fun kid things. And um, I used to envision her walking on the beach when she found the, the, the message in the bottle that she was very excited about. And she started writing messages and putting them in bottles and tossing them out into the 
into the ocean. I thought um, that that was a really fun thing just to, to, to hear her talking about her childhood days. Well, I had, you know, my elementary school childhood was really good, and we used to do a lot of stuff on the beach. I'd collect shells, and then we'd make mosaics out of them. Another childhood thing that um, my sister and I had rock collections when we were young. We used to smash rocks open and see what they looked like inside. But I was so happy when I got the message in the bottle, and then I started, uh, you know, throwing messages out there in bottles, and I would get about half of them back. I thought that was great fun. It, it was a fascinating part of the book. I was saying to Anita before that there was one thing in particular that I was shocked by, and, and I don't know if it's okay for you to talk about it uh, here on the show, but I was fascinated by the exchange that you had with B.F. Skinner. Skinner. I knew you were going to say that. So I can talk about that on the show. Uh, I, I was an undergraduate psychology major at the time, and I wrote to Skinner, and he invited me to his office. And it was like going into the, uh, see the god of psychology, and I go in and there's an old professor there, and I had on a dress at that time, and he asked me if I could touch my, he, he could touch my legs. And I said, you may look at them, but you may not touch them. <laughs> and that was the end of that. I remember another thing with him, and I did write about this in my book, uh, Animals in Translation. Um, I said, B.F. Skinner, we need to learn about the brain. He says, we don't need to learn about the brain. We have opera conditioning. Well, I never believed that. And then years later, when Skinner got a stroke, he realized that maybe he did have to look inside the box after all. How's that for karma? I, I, you know, in this, this year of the woman and this year of the UN general, uh, them saying that it's this year the focus is going to be on women and girls on the autism spectrum, but it's also been the year of Me Too, and to hear you talk about B.F. Skinner, I just have to say, I have to applaud you, Temple, for saying to him, no, you can look, but you cannot touch. That's was, exactly what I told him. Was he and surprised? I talked, to somebody, I talked to somebody just recently about it that worked with B.F. Skinner years ago, and they said, oh, yeah, that's B.F., that's the kind of stuff he did. Shocking. But what was what was his expression when you said that to him, Temple? Was he shocked that you oh, said no? It just, it just it totally ended it. And then after that, we went and toured his rat lab, and we got to talking about you know research. Well, I I, I loved how you did. Kind of you know, the great BF did that. And I loved how you talked about how it instantly you went up to that building thinking that you were going to see somebody larger than life, and it instantly changed him in your mind. That big vine went all around his office, and he looked just like a regular professor. It was sort of like finding Oz behind the curtain. There you go. I love that. And Anita, were you shocked to hear this story? Um, I'm never really shocked when I hear stories about men doing things like that. Um, it just I found it actually very entertaining. But back then and that day, um, geez, he was actually before his time to do something like that. But actually, I was very impressed. Um, had I been in the situation and the, and the guy said that to me, I probably would have been sort of speechless. Um, I love Temple's comeback. You may look at them, but you may not touch them. I thought that was really slick. I love that. Really calmly and quietly and very slick. Because I was trained to always be polite. Well, and, and you were polite, but you had that firm boundary. I was impressed. I want for all of our young women to hear that. I thought that yes. that was absolutely... And you know what? It, it ended it. 
Now, the situation where this stuff really gets to be a problem, I had a situation in one of my very early freelance jobs where there was a ranch foreman who wanted to have sex with me, and he was slapping me on the butt, and I pushed him off. And then, of course, he goes and tells the boss that the corrals that I designed for him did not work. See, the situation where you absolutely cannot deal with this is when it's a boss. B.F. Skinner was not my boss. My boss. He did not uh, do my grades. Whereas this other guy was able to sabotage the project. You see, when it's a boss at work, that is a situation that just absolutely can be career-wrecking. And so what did you yes. do, Temple? It was a real problem because he, you know, he, told, the, he told the rancher, this guy was a former rancher, that the corrals didn't work. And I almost thought, well, I'm going to just have to give up designing corrals. But thank goodness that wonderful Jim the contractor who had built the corrals, he was another really important inventor for me. He seeked me out to design corrals for him. And he, you know, supported me and says, no, no, I want you to keep designing stuff for me. And, and, um, but that was a situation you see where it was a, a boss doing it to me on wow. a job. And that, that was much more difficult to deal with than the B.F. Skinner thing. B.F. Skinner was not my boss. Absolutely. Now, Jim fig figures pretty largely in the book. Uh, he's somebody that you, you knew for a, a long time and that really you collaborated with a lot. Well, Jim, um, Jim had seen some of my drawings, and he actually seeked me out. He wanted to get started in designing corrals, and uh, he really helped me get my business started. Um, he was one of the really important mentors out in the industry. I mean, he, he was a man that um, really helped me a whole lot. He built my projects, but I also helped him. Now he's doing big, gigantic um, uh, projects now for the uh, Department of Transportation in Arizona and military bases and all sorts of things. But he was just a little tiny company in a little teeny small office in his house when he started. But and you, so we both uh, helped each other. Well, and but you've helped a lot of people, and I love that it's one of the things, Anita, that you featured in the book. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you were impressed with, Anita, ways that Temple has helped others. was when um, I learned that Temple pays for her graduate students' um, full entire tuition um, and enables them to uh, get their, their PhD in the animal science under her you know, instruction and, and, and uh, tutelage. And I was so shocked at that. Um, there's so many people that, that, that I've known in my lifetime or, or you read about that are, you know, have the means to do that and they would never do anything like that. Um, I was just so, you know, Temple wants to continue on this whole, um, the animal uh, handling and everything, uh, and the way she she teaches it, and wants it to continue on, and that's what's so, it's so spectacular, when that was, that was very shocking, very thrilling thing for me to hear that when I learned that. Yeah, Temple, was this a secret? Because I don't think anybody knew this. you're so spectacular but you've helped other people along the way uh, I, oh, yeah, I've, helped, I've put a lot of students through um, through graduate school amazing and when I was saying earlier that my favorite part of the book was hearing about your friend Mark and and obviously you did a lot of things to help him along his way he came to me uh, in the early 90s and he had a theory about the temperament of horses and the hair whorls that are in the middle of horses' heads. 
and he had observed during horseshoeing that a horse that had high hair whorls, way up high on the forehead, maybe a set of double hair whorls, a lot more flighty. And he had gone to several universities, and they had just turned him down. They thought that was crazy. He came to me, and I said, well, let's, uh, let's work on this. But instead of horses, let's do cattle. They have exactly the same kind of hair whorls. So we did a study. We went out to feed yard and looked at 1,500 head of cattle, and we ranked them on how much they uh, got agitated in the squeeze chute. And the animals that tended to get agitated when they're held in the squeeze chute um, had to had higher hair whorls. Um, and also at that same time, we were doing some of the early first work on cattle temperament. Now, I had a student named Bridget Blasene, and Bridget did a study uh, where we found that cattle that are really wild and get agitated when you handle them had lower weight gains. And 20 years ago, that was real radical stuff. Now, um, you know, everybody's temperament testing the cattle. It's not industry practice. But in 1996 and 97, paper was published. That was the real pioneering stuff. Well, and, and I found it fascinating that you go on to talk about this study in the book. Anita had included it in the book because it's fascinating. And um, that one of the things that you, you both discovered was that if you treated those cattle and those horses slightly differently, that those they were better performers if they... Oh, that's right. See, what, you, what you have to do with a horse that's really slighty is you got to make sure you don't traumatize them. You know, you take a horse like an Arab that's very sensitive. If you beat it up, that animal almost, I think, gets a PTSD and it doesn't get over it. You know, you can take an animal that's got a calmer temperament, force it to do something, get away with it. But you take that animal that's a really sensitive, high fear temperament, uh, and you treat it right. You know, some of those are some of the most intelligent uh, horses. Yes. Well, and of course, that, that seemed very familiar to me with the autism community, that maybe a, a different way of learning, a different approach, but sometimes the intelligence is so much higher. Don't you both agree? Well, I've talked about uh, autism. <clears throat> we'll be said autism in the mild forms is just part of normal human variation. A brain can be more thinking or a brain can be more uh, social-emotional, and there's a certain range that's just gonna be, you know, normal variation. And I found a really interesting paper that just came, that came out in 2018, where scientists have been looking at genes involved with autism, and they're all brain development genes. And basically, um, what scientists are learning is that the genes that cause autism and schizophrenia are the same genes that give human beings a very large brain. And that autism is a, a rapid early growth too much and schizophrenia is not enough later growth and it, it involves the same things in fact i recently did some real fancy genomics testing and i found out exactly why i have a genetic defect why i have small teeth i've got thin nails that break off my skin's a mess but it actually uh, told me very very little about the autism genes there's a whole list of them and each one contributes a little bit and that's exactly how brain development genes would work it's all so fascinating. I want to I, I want to encourage people. They need to get this book. I just think it's a lovely book. Did you? Obviously, you've read the book now, right, Temple? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I got a lot of my NASA pictures in there. I did a fabulous trip to NASA. I got to see a SpaceX launch. <clears throat> I got to sit in the launch director's uh, chair uh, when they uh, where they did the moonshot. It was a total NASA geek out. Got lots of pictures of me at NASA in the book in the. Uh, uh, stories I tell my friends. Um, 
that was so much fun. You know, the thing I learned when I went to NASA, and I've been to NASA also in Houston. And, I was uh, with you on that trip. Lab, <laughs> the right stuff rolled the rockets, but the geeks and the nerds and the misfits and the people with mild autism and yes. dyslexia and every other label, they built the stuff. That's right. Exactly. That's right. I, and I wished I'd thought of it because I have a bunch of I have a bunch more pictures of you when we went to Houston together to NASA Temple that I wished I'd given them to Anita because I've got a bunch of pictures, but I'll share those with you, Temple. Well, um, I've got some really good pictures. Um, they are the ones. Cape Kennedy and um, took a lot of, you know, going to a real launch is so exciting compared to watching it on TV. You know, we got to get kids out, out doing real things. I agree. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Now you're breaking up just a little bit, Temple, and okay, I wanted. I've got, I've got another book coming out called uh, "Calling All Minds." It's about famous inventors and all the things that I made when I was a child, and I'd spent hours and hours tinkering and making things. I love that. I I want to take just a second here because we've had a bunch of people writing in questions. Somebody wrote in and said two questions for Temple about how to learn to work and get a job and how to learn to drive a car. All right, I definitely want to talk about. This. How to learn, how to learn work, and how to drive. I can answer those uh, really easily. You want me to do, do that right now? Yes, please. Okay, driving. It's going to take longer in order to deal with the problem of the multitasking. The person with autism has to learn the operation of the car before we do any traffic. Driver's ed throws them in way too quickly. I learned to drive on my aunt's ranch, where it was three miles up to the mailbox, three miles back. And by the time I did that all summer, I had done 200 miles of driving. Then we did traffic. So what I recommend is spend 20 minutes a day in a completely safe place, like a giant parking lot, back roads, learning how to operate the car before we do any traffic at all, maybe even before you do driver's ed, because they throw them in way too quickly. Uh, that's my main thing on driving. It's going to take longer. And then I'm learning how to work. You know, the kids that are, you know, you know, coming of age now when they're in middle school, they need to be doing volunteer jobs. It's really important to start doing jobs outside the home on a schedule. Now, in some states, you can do regular jobs at 14, others at 16. You know, let's get two real jobs under that belt before they graduate. I would like to get rid of the problems with the transition. I'd like the transition to work done. Because when you look at a lot of older people, I have grandfathers coming up to me all the time. And they're finding out that they're on the spectrum when the grandkid is diagnosed. And granddad had a job all his life because he had a paper route at age 11. And he'd been working the whole time he was in high school. I, and I think Joanne would absolutely agree. Uh, and so I want to move on to another question here. Uh, they want to know, what's the best advice for caregivers who have newly diagnosed toddlers in regards to helping with relating and educating their children? Well, we've got to make sure we start doing some early intervention. And when I was uh, two years old and a toddler, uh, my speech teacher did a lot of work on learning how to wait and take turns. Do not wait two years for a diagnosis. You've already got a diagnosis. He's not talking and his behavior is not very social and, and has problems. Uh, Teach these kids how to take turns, playing little turn-taking games, board games, maybe with a ball, throwing it back and forth. Um, my speech teacher would speak very slowly to me, start teaching me words, but you've got to start working with this kid now. And the book I'd recommend, my books for that, is The Way I See It. 
and I'd recommend getting the book now, and you start working on this kid now. Uh, if you get services right away, wonderful. But if you're in a part of the country where services are not available, then you need to get some volunteers from your church group because the worst thing you can do with a two-year-old that's not talking is to do nothing. That is the worst. The earlier we work on these kids, the better. Wonderful. Another uh, person says, Dr. Grandin, any advice for communication and socialization for my 20-year-old autistic son who is verbal but only expresses his needs and wants? And they said, thank you. because you learn things by comparing it back to previous experience. And when I first did public speaking, I was scared, and I walked out of a class where I was doing public speaking. And, and you've got to get out and, and do things. Some of the things that helped me was being party hostess when I was eight, nine years old. I had to shake hands with the guests. They've got to get them out doing things. And I had friends who shared interests. You know, for me and for you, Anita, it was horses was one of the big things. Also, I had model rockets as one of my shared interests and um, electronics lab uh, doing friends who shared interests. Because when I was in high school and I was bullied and teased, those were the places that were refuges away from bullying and teasing. And give the kids some choices. Okay, you could do karate or you could do um, robotics or you could do robotics or you could do band. Um, give them some choices. Uh, but you basically just got to get them out doing things. I love that. And it kind of feeds into this next question. Ari says, I have Asperger's and I love wolves and wildlife biology. Is this unhealthy? I think that it's okay. I have a healthy lifestyle and I go outside a lot, but people tell me it's not good. No, wildlife biology? You can have a career in wildlife biology. There's a lot of people that work in wildlife biology. Might be something you might want to major in in college. And what I want to emphasize in college today, do internships they lead to jobs so if you go into a wildlife biology department we have one right here on the csu campus you need to be doing an internship every summer in wildlife biology no wildlife biology is a is a career choice that's totally doable i agree uh, andrew and, and Sh shanna i just want to point out yes. everything that you're talking about the driving the internship everything and, and jobs this is all addressed in this book also, the stories I tell my friends in Temple's big message, um, and there's a chapter in there where we talk about the driving and how Temple learned how to drive. So yes, all these things are, that, that we're touching on right now are also covered in this book. I uh, thank you for pointing that out, and I appreciate that. Uh, there's one more question. Um, Andrew wants to know, hi, Dr. Grandin. This is Andrew. I've got a question for you. I'm on the spectrum. Do you think having sensory issues counts as outbursts? a real issue. I mean, I had problems with sound sensitivity, and one of the ways to help reduce sound sensitivity is you have control over it. Like, there was one uh, boy who was afraid of the vacuum cleaner, and when they let him play with it, where you could turn it on and off and control it, he finally got to where he could tolerate it better. There's a paper you might want to get. It's called Environmental Enrichment is an Effective Treatment for Autism. You need to type these three words into Google. Uh, autism, environmental enrichment. And what you do in this paper is you stimulate two different senses at the same time and you constantly vary the two senses that you stimulate. Now, I want to tell you an interesting thing on sensory about astronauts. There was the astronaut that spent a year on the space station. And when he got back, he had sensory sensitivity of his skin with his clothes rubbing on his skin 
really similar to someone with autism. Now, he didn't say autism, but what he described in an interview, he said it was a burning sensation. You see, and that's because his skin had no input, like his clothes didn't hardly touch him when he was in weightlessness of space. And it went away after a couple of months when he got back home. When he got back home, he, he, he jumped into the pool with his clothes on. I, he had sensory issues, but they were caused by a lack of, of, of tactile sensory input while he was in the space station and weightlessness. It's fascinating. So I, think we, I, think, I think sensory issues for me is the number one top thing that needs to be researched in autism. Big number one area that needs to be researched treatments for sensory problems. They range from being a nuisance to being very debilitating. Well, and Anita, you can chime in and talk about sensory issues too because you, you have sensory issues. Yes. And, and it's part of what has led to you being discriminated against in your job. Don't you agree? Yes, of course, the loud, loud heavy metal music yes, being played in the operating room. Yes. But, but you are completely able to do your job at the top of your game. And if people were just respectful, these sensory issues wouldn't prevent you from doing your job. Right, I mean, they don't, it doesn't prevent me from doing my job. It just physically makes me ill. So by the time I leave at the end of the day, I have you know, a raging headache and feel sick all over and totally exhausted because that kind of uh, massive sensory overload for 12 hours just really wears a person down. Absolutely, absolutely. But I still do my job, but it's, I'm the one who has to suffer for, for that. And it's very tiring. Exactly. See, I, have prob I still have problems with, if I'm in a noisy restaurant, I can tolerate it, but the problem is I'm basically functionally deaf. I can't screen out the restaurant background noise. If I want to have serious conversations with people in the restaurant, I'd prefer a quieter one. Absolutely. We had one more comment from Maya who says, Dr. Grandin, this is Maya who emailed you the other day about Stephen Hawking. And she goes on to say it looks like that she won't be able to uh, see you in Athens, but she's wanting to know if you have anything planned in Atlanta anytime soon. Well, I'm happy to look at the schedule. I think I've got this blessing of going to Atlanta, but um, I have to look at the schedule. I, as of remembering right now, in the close future, I don't remember anything in, in Atlanta coming up right away. Had you ever had the opportunity to meet uh, Stephen Hawking? No, I never met Stephen Hawking. I, I After he died, I looked up a whole lot of things about him. And there were some very interesting things that Stephen Hawking said. Um, one of the things he said, since he couldn't move, this was in The Economist really recently, couldn't move and couldn't write, he had to use geometry to do the uh, all his mathematics and Ten, which I thought was really interesting, and he used Penrose mathematics. I actually looked some of it up online, and it's pure pattern thinking. Fascinating gentleman. Uh, and and Maya further went on to say, Temple, I'm discovering a childhood obsession, which is from Roger Rabbit, Roger Rabbit, the movie, and I want to start I a collection. And she says, what are some other ways to work with this obsession? Because she's thinking of starting a collection, but what's another way she could work with that obsession? Well, if you're good at drawing, you could go into animation is one of the things that you could do. Uh, it kind of depends. If you want to teach, you could teach uh, filmmaking to kids, teach kids animation. Um, now, when I was a young kid, all I wanted to draw was horse heads. And my mother always encouraged me to draw lots of different things. Take that obsession and broaden it out. Learn about how the Roger Rabbit movies were made. That was one of the very first movies where you had animation and live people action together in the same scene. That was something that was a very new thing when that movie came out. 
Yeah, it was fascinating. I know that we need to let you go. We've reached the time that because you, you've got a lot of things going on uh, at school today. And uh, but I want to thank you, Temple, for all that you do. I want to thank you for taking the time uh, today and and for all those hours with Anita. We we we're gonna keep Anita with us as we move to the next segment. But I want to encourage people to get the book. The book is fabulous. It's Dr. Temple Grandin, the story. Yeah, I can I can stay a few more minutes. Oh, okay. Unless you want to just go on to the next segment. Well, I, I need to leave at, um, at, at at quarter to the hour to get to my class. Well, we we'll keep you as long as we can keep you, Temple. Uh, to the global. At quarter to one, uh, my we, time to walk over to the one o'clock okay. class. Joanne has something that she wants to pose. I thought okay. it would be interesting, Temple, to speak to the, the mission for the UN today for autism awareness is women and children. And as we know, globally, that doesn't look the same as it looks here. Women are discriminated against educationally, uh, employment-wise, and also there's more violence with women with autism globally. And you travel globally as well. I, Dude, would you like to speak to that? Well, I think I'll leave that to somebody else to speak about. I'm not doing any uh, uh, any global traveling right now. Okay. Well, I've got some cattle stuff I'm working on. But obviously, these are important issues. I, did well, no, they're important issues. And yeah. The, yeah, they're absolutely important issues. But the problem is I, I can only work on so many issues. Absolutely, and absolutely. And the other thing is I am a professor of animal science at Colorado State in the animal science department. But I think it's also important that I still continue to do my actual real career. Yeah. Autism is a very important part of my life, but it's not my only life. And I had another big thing I thought about when I went to Cape Kennedy. I had a chance to visit the Mars launch platform. And there were some people working on that that had Tourette's. And as I walked under the American flag saying where it said the future starts here, I thought, what would you rather be, Mr. Tourette's or Mr. Mars launch platform? I think I'd rather be Mr. Uh, Launchpad. Uh, and autism is a really important part of who I am, but it, but it, my career is one of my main identities. And in reading some materials about Stephen Hawking last night, he talked about the importance of career. Now, he was also very active as an activist, especially uh, later in his life. Absolutely. But career was what gave Stephen Hawking life meaning. Yeah, we're, we're losing you a little bit, but... I, I noticed that one of the things that you talked about in the book that you feel really good about is that when you started out in your career, you were one woman with all those other men, but that you have actually helped to help other women have a career in the same field. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, somebody has to be the pioneer, and being a woman was a much bigger issue for me than the autism was. The, the being a woman and one of the things is I was rather kind of forceful and and uh, I would sort of uh, push my way into things there's a scene in the HBO movie where I walk up to the editor of the Farmer Ranchman magazine and I get his card that scene actually happened yeah. and I recognized that if I could start writing articles for the farm magazine that would open up a lot of doors I had to have the guts to walk up and get that card and the movie showed it really well and I think that's one of the things that you and Anita have in common is that both of you are, it seems to me, neither one of you will take no for an answer. Anita, do you well, want to you speak are, to Anita, you were going to drive that Zamboni no matter what. And you ended up getting to run the searchlights <laughs> and drive the Zamboni. That's right. I can relate. 
exactly. And these are just some of the things, you guys, that they talk about in the book. I, I, I love picturing you driving a Zamboni, Anita. And I agree with Dr. Grand, and there's no way that that was not going to happen. But, but you both have had to push and push and push um, and, and hear the word no and then find a, another way in. Ranchman, basically on my master's thesis that I did on squeeze shoots, and then after I got kicked out of the Scottsdale feed yard, and they actually did put bull testicles on my vehicle, I then went back to the farm arrangement and suggested that I write a column. So that was my revenge for getting thrown out of Scottsdale feed yard, was to write for the magazine and get a press pass. And I recognized the value of that press pass because it got me into meetings with very expensive registration fees for free. And where do you got? Where do you think the both of you learned this kind of tenacity? Did you get it from your the other women in your lives? Well, my mother was a bit of a rebel, and and uh, she had she had a lot of a lot of tenacity. My grandfather was the co-inventor of the autopilot for airplanes. We used to talk about science all the time, um, and I, the other thing that helped me was being that party hostess when I was really little. I learned how to walk up to strange people and just shake hands with them and talk to them. I love it. Anita, where do you think you got your tenacity? It's just something that kind of evolved along the way. Um, being that I came from a poor family, and everything that I wanted to do, I had to really just work really hard and fight for it. And just, I wasn't about to take no for an answer for anything. And just would forge ahead. And if I couldn't get in one way, I'd just figure out another way. Just like Temple with that find your way in the back door. Um, that, that's how it had to work for me. Um, and like, you know, that, that's the only way, if you want to really do something, you just have to keep on going. Yeah. And, and you see, my, my revenge for getting kicked out of Scottsdale feed yard was to become a columnist. And then I remember when I went to cover my first Arizona cattle feeders meeting, they wanted to throw me out. And then I proved to them that when I covered the Arizona cattle feeders meeting, I did it accurately. And I didn't misquote anybody. And I got a reputation as a very good reporter who always quoted everybody accurately. And then people began to respect that. Then the other thing I did to sell jobs is I'd pull my drawings out and show them to people. And they'd look at my drawings and go, oh, you may be weird, you drew that. I'd show them pictures of jobs I had designed. Again, selling my work rather than selling myself. I'd go in to interview a client. I just laid the drawings out on the table. Well, and you talk in the book about how the difference between a man and a woman going for a job uh, and, and that a man can be at 60%. What percent does a woman have to be at to do the same job? Some of it, it came out of Carol Sandberg's lead-in. A lot of women are too chicken to take a job unless they're at the 90%. Most guys will take a job at the 60%. When I took that dip-back job, I was at the 60% level, and I said, give me three weeks. Because this is pre-internet, so I had to get drawings on how to do these uh, concrete reinforcement stuff. And I got on the phone the next day, and I got the drawings. I got a, I went all over Arizona looking at um, different dip vats. But I've also seen a guy, when working professionally, who was at the 20% level, and he had such a big ego that he didn't bother to learn, and he wrecked a meatpacking plant. Wrecked it. It had to close. I was actually on that project. I was just horrified. And he got to keep his job, is that correct? Well, he actually ended up eventually switching to another very good job after he basically uh, 
didn't put enough wastewater treatment into a meatpacking plant, and they were told by all the other engineers that he didn't have enough wastewater treatment. He went ahead with it anyway, and the city shut him down. Yeah, and if a woman had done that, I think the outcome might have been different. A woman's career. Yes. If a woman had done that. I, I mean, this. I watched another plant. I was on another project where a guy wrecked a refrigeration system because he didn't listen to anybody. Wow. Well, I. And this was just. I call them the plant wreckers. You know, <laughs> it's just pure ego. Now I was at the sixty percent level, but I scrambled and very quickly got myself up to the ninety percent level. I went to every dip bat in Arizona. Uh, and I got the drawings that show how to do the concrete reinforcement because I knew somebody in Washington, D.C. to call that worked for the USDA, and he sent me a book that had the drawings. And mm. I got a hold of um, uh, other places to get other information. The next, uh, and that's why I said give me three weeks because I knew I had to get information together to do that project. Well, I it's always fascinating to hear the tales that you tell, which is one of the reasons why people should get this book because you're going to hear things that you've never heard anyplace else. And it's just delightful. And not only that, you'll get to know Anita Lesko. Um, so we want to encourage people. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it from all the major booksellers. And you can get it at Future Horizons. They have a great website where you can get all of Temple's books there. Uh, we want to thank Future Horizons for all that they do. Uh, Temple, I know you got to get over to your class and we got to get on to our next segment, but it is always a pleasure to have you with us. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I'm going to run off the class, and I hope I didn't fade in enough too much. Not too much, not too much at all.